Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude, the second to last book of the Bible. We have worked our way almost all the way through the Bible, summarizing the books, book by book. And so today we come to Jude, the short letter written by Jude. Here's the key concept for today while you find the book of Jude. Don't forsake the truth for pleasant deception. Don't forsake the truth for pleasant deception. We'll find how that fits in the book of Jude in just a moment. But it's good for us to at least remember and understand that pleasant deception is all around us. But though it be pleasant, it is deception nonetheless, and it is false, and it is dangerous. Many Americans, when surveyed today, adopt a new title in relationship to uh, spiritual things. They adopt the title, Spiritual But Not Religious. It is a reaction to what they consider to be the, the uh, strictness, if you will, or whatever, of organized religion. Organized religion is uh, seemingly a, a bad term these days. So, Spiritual But Not Religious is the title that many choose. And there are common threads, however, even though this spiritual but not religious term is meant to allow an individual to find their own pathway, there are common threads along this path. In a recent book by a New York Times columnist called Bad Religion, he noted a number of them, but just two of them is what I'll mention to you today. Number one, a common thread is that sin and evil are considered to be illusions that will ultimately be reconciled rather than problems that we need to deal with and defeat. Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, writes, There's no such thing in the universe as hell, except maybe in our own terrified minds. A second theme is that perfect happiness is available now by coming in touch with ourselves. Heaven is available here and now. James Redfield, the author of the Celestine Prophecy, writes, I'm quoting, at some point, everyone will vibrate highly enough so that we can walk into heaven in our same form. Now, I don't know how I ought to vibrate. But I can tell you that teachings like these, and many like them, are falsehoods and deceptions. And when they seep into what are supposedly Christian fellowships, they are apostasy. And that's what Jude writes to confront. Jude writes to confront the drift into apostasy. So look at Jude, verse 3. Here's what he says. He says, Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. He wanted to write a letter of encouragement and rejoicing and praise about what they share in Jesus Christ, but he saw that there was an urgent need in the church of his day to receive a word of, of encouraging them to fight for what is true, apostasy. This short letter is written by Jude, who is the brother of James, and both of whom are the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. I'll pause for a moment for those of you who grew up Roman Catholic to kind of breathe, because 
you know, the, the tradition of the Catholic Church is that uh, Jesus was the only child and Mary was a perpetual virgin, but, virgin, but th that's not what the Scriptures teach, and we just have to be aware of that. Matthew chapter 13, we, we have these individuals named as Jesus' brothers, and it references to brothers and sisters in other places in the New Testament. And these two, James and, John, uh, James and Jude, when they write their letters that we now have as part of the New Testament, they never refer to themselves as the siblings of Jesus. Out of humility, they don't, they don't offer that up, but James speaks of himself as the servant of Jesus. Jude, as his, he emphasizes his connection to James, who was the head of the Jerusalem church, but both James and Jude long ago abandoned thinking of Jesus as only their older brother. They now understand who he really is, the anointed one, the Messiah, and they write as his servants. It's significant because if, any, if ever there was anyone who could probably pick out maybe evidence against the divinity of Jesus, it was his brothers who grew up with him, who sat at table with him, who played the games of youth with him, but... There was no evidence for them to find. And so at this point in their lives, they are both devoted followers of Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And, and Jude writes this letter to encourage the others who are following Jesus as Savior and Lord. And when he writes this letter, he writes a letter that actually sounds a lot like 2 Peter chapter 2. If you were to put the letter of Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2, side by side, you would see similar vocabulary, you would see similar points being made, similar issues being raised. Both of them sound a lot alike. And this is encouraging to us because we know that Jude and Peter would have known one another. They would have spent time together. They would have talked together and, and fellowshiped together. And there were no doubt moments when Peter and Jude would have discussed what they would say when they were confronted with certain sorts of issues and problems. And they, and they developed, so to speak, a ready response for how they would encourage the church when certain problems were faced. And Peter and Jude both here are writing against a similar issue. And it is the issue of apostasy. What is apostasy? It comes from the Greek word which translates to revolt. But this is not a political revolt. This is a revolt of ideas. Apostasy is heresy. And though he wanted to write an encouraging word, he needed to write a word of exhortation. So in verse 4, he jumps right into it. Read with me. He says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Evidently the issue is that some teachers are now teaching that God's grace means that we have license for immoral behavior. That God's grace gives permission for immorality and freedom to sin. That's the, the argument of the false teachers. Jude explains their situation further in verse 16. He says, These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Verse 19, These are the men who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. 
It seems that the case that these false teachers were making is the case from their natural instincts. It is the case that sounds something like this. We hear it around us today. It says, if this comes naturally to me, if it is instinctive and the product of my natural desires, and it comes from within, then it must be good, whatever it is. That is exactly the reasoning of the new morality around us today. And what we find here is that the new morality is a very ancient sin. It's right here in the first century. The reasoning could be when a behavior is innately desirous to me, when a behavior is according to what I consider to be my nature, it must be okay. Or put it another way, I was born like this, so surely it's right for me, whatever the it is. Jude faced that same exact reasoning in the first century. And Jude shows us what we need to know, and that is that reasoning is absolutely opposite of what the Bible teaches. In fact, that reasoning ultimately is the logical denial that there is any behavior that is ultimately right or ultimately wrong. For if there is no standard to which we appeal other than what comes naturally from our instincts, then there is nothing that is universally wrong or right. And what we have is ethical chaos. It is, however, the system all around us. And it was present in the first century. And Jude shows us that behind this kind of thinking and entwined with this moral rebellion, there is a theological rebellion, a doctrinal rebellion going on. And he points it out in verse 4. Go to the end of verse 4. He says, They are godless men who change the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Intermixed and entwined with the immoral rebellion is the rejection of the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. This denial of the faith builds a platform that promotes immoral lifestyle. Because when you teach that a Christian can live any way they want to live and not be in sin, it's a very short step to then teach a Christian can believe anything they want to believe and not be in error. And these two rebellions revolve around itself themselves. It's a vicious cycle, each one supporting the other. And it's no surprise. Francis Bacon, the philosopher who died in 1626, once summed it up this way. He said, man prefers to believe what he prefers to be true. In other words, left to myself, I'm going to create a belief system that supports my own preferences rather than accept that there is a supreme God before whom I am accountable and before whom one day I will stand in judgment. Man prefers to believe what he prefers to be true. But the Bible declares that God has not left us to ourselves. God has given us a revelation and a word. And God has come to us in a person, Jesus Christ. And He has described the moral standards by which the universe is organized and by which He evaluates our lives. And what I want you to understand is all of this is a gift of love. God's uh, design for human life 
and God's gift to us in the sense of who Jesus is and what he asks of us is a gift of love. God does not organize the the universe according to his moral principles because he is a cosmic party pooper who wants no one to have any fun. He knows that this is the best for us. The necessity of this could be seen, for instance, from the analogy of an orchestra. Every orchestra needs a conductor. A conductor is there to answer the question, what shall we play? When shall we practice? Without a conductor to organize and answer those questions, when you go to hear a, a, a symphony concert, you may walk into the concert hall and each of the musicians are choosing to play their favorite piece of music and you may actually be submitted to 70 or 80 different pieces of music all at once. It's going to be chaos. But when they submit to the authority of the conductor and they follow his leadership, What is produced by that orchestra is harmonious and glorious and beautiful for the listener. And that's what God does as He organizes His universe. We need to submit to the authority of the heavenly conductor and say, He he shows me how I ought to live. And so Jude says, contend against the apostates. I urge you, he says, to contend for the truth that was once for all delivered. Why? Because history shows us that eventually God deals harshly with those who rebel. Look at verse 5. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their homes, these he kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. He wants them to remember that God has dealt harshly with rebellion in the past. And don't think that the justice of God has changed. It's important for us in in this modern age for us to recognize what Jude is saying because what he's saying to them, he says to us, God is not now a cuddly, easy manipulated, senile old man who doesn't care about his standards anymore. He doesn't change and his will doesn't change. And when you follow false teachers, you put yourself in danger. And Jude warns them. And who are these false teachers? He says, well, they're right among you. They are influencing you. They are present with you. Verse 12, these men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. They are right in your midst. We need to understand that in the the first century church, Communion and the Lord's Supper, like we do it today in in the worship service, that was not done in in that method back in the first century. Communion, the Lord's Supper, was a part of what was called the love feast. The love feast was, you might say, a fellowship dinner, a potluck supper. And people would come and they'd eat together, they'd fellowship together, they'd enjoy their company, but then they'd pause in the midst of this feast and they would 
eat and drink in remembrance of the, of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They would do the ceremony that we call communion in that, in that kind of setting. So it was both a fellowship time and a worship time. And no doubt it was a teaching time and an influence time. And, and said, these false teachers are there in your midst while you're doing that. And they are frauds among you, influencing you in the wrong direction. You need to be able to spot what is fake and test by the truth. I, I read that. I thought of a story from the news back in 2013. You're going to remember this as soon as I, I tell you the details. It comes from China. Back in 2013, in the, the public zoo of the largest province of China, they had an unusual problem then, and that is the visitors to the zoo noticed that the animal that was inside the cage labeled African lion was a dog. Do you remember that story? Yeah, is it... Oh, they pulled up a picture. Yeah, that is a Tibetan mastiff, okay? And what the, what the zookeeper said that because of financial uh, constraints, meaning we sold the lion, all right, they needed to put something else in the cage. They put this dog in the cage. And even though it kind of looks like a lion, the visitors were, 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 were obviously there wasn't a lion when the visitors heard the dog bark at them, Right? I mean, that is a fraud, and it was obviously a fraud. And in the same way, the, Jude is saying, there are frauds among you. And uh, you can tell what they're, what they're saying is false because it doesn't conform to the image of what God wants you to understand. He uses some descriptive terms to, to illustrate what they're like. He uses the terms shepherds, clouds, trees, waves, stars. All of these are pleasant images, but on every one for the next few verses, he twists it negative. He says, they are shepherds who feed only themselves. They're not feeding you. They are clouds without rain. They're not giving you anything of value. They are trees that are uprooted and dead. They're not producing fruit. They are waves and they, when they crash, they spew only shame. And they are wandering stars. In this day, a star was a source of navigation. You can't get anywhere by these stars. You never know where they're going to be. They're all over the place. Each positive image is turned negative. You must contend against that, he said. And you must stand by the sure word of the Lord, once for all delivered. And their faithfulness will bring punishment. And then he goes on and he, and he quotes Enoch regarding these men. Verse 14. He says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Do you hear the theme ungodly in there? All right. Enoch is repeating that to stress the point that these false teachers are ungodly and, and uh, uh, Jude is saying this is the kind of person that Enoch had in mind when he writes that. Now what's interesting, and here's a parenthesis, I want you to understand. The book of Enoch is not a book of the Bible. It was popular literature in Jude's day, in the first century. And Jude shows us that just because you are a person who reads and depends on the Word of God doesn't mean you need to be ignorant of anything else that's written. Jude reads widely. He's read Enoch. And he, set, he shows us that something that's not in the Bible can help us understand the truths of the Bible. And so he quotes this book that's not a Bible book, but he sees it as truth. And in so doing, he establishes a principle for us. 
and that is this. Read widely. Read often. But sift everything you read through the Bible and the Word of God. Understand that there is the priority of Scripture. That is the standard of what is true. doesn't mean you can't read other things, but when you do read other things, sift those things through the Word of God to establish truth. Because the Word of God stands supreme as the authority. And he, comp- he lifts this quote out of popular literature, and he says that too shows us what these false teachers are like. And so what is he calling us to do? He's calling us to what I'll say adopt a warfare mentality. He's calling us to keep our guard up. He's calling us to understand that the battle is real and not to grow complacent and just kind of go along to get along. The bloodiest war that the United States ever fought in terms of U.S. casualties was the Civil War. We were fighting both sides of that war. And even though photography was early in its infancy during the Civil War, we have photographs of great carnage during that war. The loss of life and the the things that happened were awful. But did you know that in the very first battle of the Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run, people from the nearby towns streamed out of their homes with their families and with blankets and baskets and tea and cakes and they sat along the edges of the battlefield and they watched the battle as if they were watching a sporting event. That's a picture of a family camped out to watch the Battle of Bull Run. And when they watched the Battle of Bull Run, in that one day, this is what they saw. 870 people killed, 2,670 soldiers wounded and maimed, and Civil War historians say that that was a light casualty battle. But I want you to understand that these people who came out completely miscalculated what they were going to see. They came out with tea and crumpets thinking it would be entertaining, and what they saw was carnage. And it is a cautionary tale for us in our struggle. When I say adopt a warfare mentality, I'm not saying adopt the mentality of tea-sipping spectators who sit on the sidelines and, and watch the battle go by. I'm saying we must struggle in prayer and in action for the souls of men and women. And we must do that because the consequences are real. So listen to Jude's encouragement for us. Verse 20. You, dear friends... Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. He's saying, You, brothers, that's a a plural there. Get together and encourage one another in the faith. Build one another up in your knowledge of the Word. It means be in Bible study together. Be in prayer groups together. Be serving side by side, active, so that God can be strengthening you in the faith. And then he changes the tone, and I love this. He says, but be merciful to those who doubt. You see, up until now, the book of Jude could be considered a cross between a pep rally and a a drill sergeant yelling in your face, you know, getting you ready for battle. But he changes the tone 
Because that tone is long on fervor but short on mercy. But God is never short on mercy. Be merciful for those, to those who doubt, to those who are wavering, those who are starting to be influenced when there's that kind of misunderstanding. There is a posture of mercy that we should take. We don't just stand and denounce them. We reason with them. We welcome them. We urge them. We pray for them. Be merciful to those who doubt. But then there are others for whom a much more vigorous posture must be taken. Snatch some out of the flame and do so with fear. In other words, express the fact, I fear for you. I fear for your destiny. I fear for what's happening. And I'm urgently contending so that those around us can know the truth. And what will happen when we do that? Here's the end of the story. Verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling, some of your Bibles say stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before ages now, before all ages, now and forevermore. What will happen? Well, you only stumble, you're only tempted to fall if you're moving. And Jude is saying, you've got to be on the move. You've got to be on the go. You've got to be in the race of faith. But while you're running the race, there is one who runs with you, who will keep you from falling, cling to him. And one day, he will present you faultless to his Father. That is a reality worth contending for, not only for ourselves, but for those that we care about. Run the race well. And when Jesus presents you to his Father, he'll do so with joy.